using AI in creative in terms of optimizing the creative message yes. is only one part of the equation. There is nothing that replaces the sheer brilliance of a top creative team, of, of the creative man and the wordsmith. My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Simon, Simon Thomas, amazing, amazing to have you as a guest. Thank you ever so much for joining us on The Drum's Negotiation, Marketing Negotiations podcast. Fantastic, Mike, and thanks for the invitation to you and for all those lovely people at The Drum. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Let's find out something about your background, first of all, Simon, for the audience. Who are you? What do you do? Where have you been? Something unusual as well. Yeah, okay, Mike. Um, I've been in, in the media and advertising business for best part of 45 years now. Um, I'm, I'm something I never expected to encounter when I started off, which was somebody with a bus pass working in a media agency. Um, basically, <laughs> in media agencies, people left by the age of 35, 40. The world has changed. Um, but I've worked in magazines, um, in 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 computer services, and more latterly, over the last, well, since 1995, well, that's quite scary, for two media agency networks. Firstly was Leo Burnett, which then became Publicis. And on the 1st of January 2000, I actually worked because I joined CIA Group, or Tempus, as they were the holding company was gone, because that was the day, if you remember, all the planes were going to fall out of the sky with the Millennium Bug. So I joined Tempus Group. We were acquired by Sir Martin Sorrell. I think he was just Martin Sorrell at that stage, hadn't been knighted, um, by WPP by accident uh, in a bidding war. And from there, I was there when Group M was founded in 2003 and have been there ever since. Amazing. And doing a whole host of jobs, uh, different roles, uh, worked all around the world, including stints in Chicago and New York, uh, a little bit out in Singapore, um, in Poland, in Germany, and in the Nordics. They're the main countries I've dealt with. But I've, I've been to every country in Europe, apart from Albania and the former Yugoslavian republics. And all of that has given me, I think, quite a good cultural perspective on the world of advertising, gen- you know, literally the geographical world of advertising. I am a geography graduate, so... It's in the blood, um, and st- and still go to the RGS and occasionally am asked to talk on on things like uh, glaciology and oceanography. Um, nineteen seventy five, nineteen seventy five. Actually, two things happened to me in my life. One is I did a Fortran and Cobol programming course at university, so I was programming in nineteen seventy six, which I find hilarious when data scientists now say to me, "Oh well, yeah, it must have been a big change when computers came into the advertising business." Um, no, we were using them in the 70s. Um, and the second thing is, is I actually was in Iceland. Um, and one of my uh, thesis dissertations that I did for my degree was the shrinking of the glaciers in Iceland. So year one, we went in and banged in a whole load of uh, steel pegs, which we painted as markers at the edge of the ice field, and then went back two years later. And even back then, they were receding at a rate of about two to three feet Per annum. Wow. So we knew, we, you know, doing oceanography, climatology, meteorology, blah, blah, all of that, we, we knew about global warming back in the 70s. Um, it's something I'm very passionate about and, and I'm 
involved with a number of organisations, including the Royal Geographical Society, talking about that. But I'm afraid our politicians don't listen. No, exactly. We've known about it for years. We've just been ignoring it. One of the great things I've found in the last year or so is once the greenwashing's out of the way, there have been some quite significant efforts made by by many of our advertiser uh, clients. Um, see, I won't name them, but no, no, uh, no, no. You know, very large CPG companies um, to do some really good sustain- sustainability uh, direct to consumer work, but also in the ways of cutting down the supply chain. Yes. Going through, you know, people go through what's called programmatic bidding. Well, if you go through 10 iterations of it, well, think of the computer power you're using up. And also looking, no, we don't want to go blockchain because that's just going to increase energy costs um, and so on and so forth. So so I'm very in, involved with our within Group M, uh, which is the agency network I work for, which is the investment arm of WPP, in, in a sust- major sustainability projects, one of which is we have a carbon calculator and every media plan is put through that carbon calculator and we optimise to the minimal level of carbon. And WPP have said by... By 2030, our entire supply chain will be carbon neutral, and we as an organisation are trying to get there by the end of 25, um, which is as we move into new campuses around the world where we bring all of our people together nationally on a single campus, um, massive property and lease savings, um, as you might imagine, but a lot more control, and every new campus is fully solar power, wind power, uh, grey water, and so on and so forth, and you know, with automatic heating control, light control, and so on and so forth to minimise the uh, the heating and uh, electricity costs because we've got a problem, you know. But as I said, I've known about it for a long time. Um, it's quite depressing that so-called intelligent people don't always recognise it. Or choose not to. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, moving on to negotiations. Yeah. By the way, unusual fact, something about rugby? Yeah, um, well, I, I played rugby for many years at... You know, school, university, and quite seriously, clubs in my 20s. Um, when I retired, I took up refereeing, um, which I enjoyed. And one day I went to see a, see a friend of mine, an old university friend of mine, who was actually the ambassador in Estonia. And uh, by I mentioned it to the RFU, and they actually said, oh, well, we're going to appoint you to an international. So I refereed Latvia against Lithuania, sorry, I beg your pardon, um, Estonia against Latvia. In the snow, minus five, polished boots, beautiful socks, press shorts and sh- short sleeve shirt. And when the players came out, they were all wearing leggings <laughs> and gloves <laughs> in the snow. But yeah, I've refereed a rugby, an international rugby match. There aren't many people that can probably say that, I suspect. No. Um, I don't actually remember much because afterwards, because of the Estonian and Russian uh, cultural base, uh, and also the fact it's where many people from Finland go to enjoy themselves at the weekend. They have quite a significant drinking culture. And I think after the first four or five vodka shots, I was probably completely away with the fairies. And probably quite warm. <laughs> so, topics. Yeah. I'm gonna, we've chosen two or three things we can have a chat about. I'm going to go in reverse order, just to confuse things, because um, I'm really fascinated about negotiating uh, the cultural differences mm-hmm. um, around the world around how that affects negotiation styles and processes. Do you want to just like kind of talk about that, about your experience of negotiating in different cultures? Yeah. I, what I think is interesting, all of it is against a context that the world has changed massively in the last 20, 25 years, and particularly in the last 10 in particular. 
Um, some some cultures and some markets, it is highly professional. Um, you know, and I one of the things I loved was in Germany, where uh, somebody I'd been dealing with for three years and from a television company, and I was from the media agency, and we were buying a significant amount of airtime. Uh, before Christmas, we went out for a formal lunch, and he said to me, he said, Herr Thomas, you may now call me Jürgen, because it was Mr. and or Mr. and Mr. And I only, I only knew, well, he was actually a doctor, but yeah, I only knew him by that name. Um, but that actually is, is there's still remnants of that in that in, in the Germanic countries, there's a bit of a standoffishness. Our friends in Poland and Hungary are incredibly inclusive. Um, you know, and whereas I've found, and it's so difficult to, to characterize and just create one, one image, but you can't, you can't generalize exactly. No, yeah. it, it's very difficult, but you know, I, I found countries like the US. Um, you know, just naturally as a mad Brit to actually use that culturally against them. And, and, and there's a benefit there. Whereas with, with, with Japanese, and I've had a number of Japanese clients over the years, you know, uh, Toshiba and Toyota and Nissan and others, um, very, very formal. And you'll be presenting to them and you'll, there'll be no expression whatsoever. And on one occasion, I even thought that the CMO had fallen asleep. Right. Um, but, <laughs> My God, that would have been a mistake. Never underestimate the Japanese, I can tell you, because he came in with two of the most insightful questions I've probably ever had in, in client meetings. And, and you know, the Australians, very relaxed, but absolutely razor sharp. Um, but across the world, I think everybody has the same problems in, are they in a procurement role or are they in a stakeholder stroke budget holder role? Uh, that, that means you have to change. And certainly I found um, in the more Latin-orientated countries, the concept of procurement really doesn't, doesn't exist. Uh, you know, oh, yes, we'll go out and have lunch and talk about And then still to this day, oh, we'll, we'll, and we'll agree a price. And that's the next one, which is, no, it's not a price, it's a value. You might have a price, but to me it's a, it's, it's a business solution value. And where you sit in the priority and in that in the, in meeting particular business challenges will determine your value to us as a company or us and our clients, uh, the advertisers. So that cost value thing is a very interesting one. And then the other thing that's changed probably in the last 10 years mostly is that it's no longer just about service. Um, we're now acting as intermediaries for data. And there are two things about data. You know, one is, is it accurate? Yep. And two, is it actually worth what the company are asking for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've had massive inflation of data perceived value, whereas the actual value probably hasn't gone up. Um, and then, as I said, there's that procurement versus stakeholder business partner thing. Then the final one I'd probably focus on culturally that is interesting is whether it's an external or an internal client or, or negotiating partner. Um I mean, particularly also for me, in that I represent Group M, we're 25% of WPP's turnover. Um, you know, so we're a significant player in the WPP PLC group. But working with my colleagues in in WPP's procurement department, now that's really interesting. So how does that work? Because I've, <laughs> I've not been a media buyer uh, on the procurement side. I've not been involved yeah. in that, uh, although I've bought lots of marketing services in my time. Exactly, um, yeah. So how does it work between... 
you working on behalf of your clients, the procurement team that sit inside Group M, the procurement team that sits inside the buyer's client's organization. How does all that kind of rich mix actually work? With great difficulty. Yeah. Um, And it varies advertiser by advertiser and indeed by geography. Uh, Where, you know, is the client based in Chicago or Cincinnati or New York? There's a giveaway for three. Um, Or is the client based in Milan or Paris? Uh, Is the client based in Tokyo? Um, Do they have a procurement department? Uh, You know, that's an extra layer. Increasingly, uh, most clients will be doing media audits anyway, not necessarily having a full procurement function. Um, So that's that's an interesting aspect of it. Just out of interest, media audits, when the media audit's done, we used to do software audits on, obviously, technology licensing and all sorts. Um, In the media audit, are there many findings where there's been overcharging? Yeah, the media audit is there for a number of things. One is to make sure the transparency agreement has been, you know, and everything that should have been passed on has been passed on. That's number one. Uh, the main area of it, though, is have have the agency bought and delivered against the commitments the agency and advertiser have made to the television companies, to to Google, to Meta, uh, to Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and is the, is the data that we've used to actually populate and calculate and produce the analysis to actually give the reports, is that true? And has it been fiddled with? Because presumably you're buying a block of media time and then you're filling all those slots. So you're eating the kind of asset that you've bought over a period of time. Sometimes, yeah, that's that's, that's portfolio buying. Uh, You might well do that. Um, In some countries, it's illegal. France, you can't do that. You have to buy on a rolling basis. France have a wonderful law called the Loi Sapin, which is basically a complete transparency and actually makes broking or arbitrage illegal. Wow. Um, yeah. So there's no but, markup by the... By, by, so arbitrage yeah, doesn't really work. There can be a mark. Well, there's a commission. Right. Yeah, Rather yeah. than the markup. The change in the marketplace probably, Mike, for me in the last 10 years is the ways in which we as agencies could make income yes, from additional negotiation and from... Um, Aggregated buying power? Potentially, um, additional volume. Um, you know, the days of what used to, be known as, um, used to be known as agency discounts or those sorts of areas is now very formalised. It's audited. They are, they are declared rebates. And, but on other occasions, we might value add. So we may well bring some digital inventory together and we would then help our client target that inventory by a specialized behavioral audience. So what we've added on top is that behavioral audience. Because you've got the, the behavioral insights based upon your data sets. Exactly. And to your point earlier, you know, yes, there's the trade with the media, but there's also the trade with data vendors. Um, there's work with, with our colleagues at Google, Meta, Amazon, Snap, Twitter, and so on and so forth, um, which will give us the some of the data there will be industry-level currencies for which we subscribe. There will be Experian, um, people like that. There will be all sorts of uh, research studies done by the, the Kantars, Nielsen's, Ipsos's of this world, um, and pure pure data companies who will tell you, um, you know, who 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 how many how many three-point turns were done in this road in London in the, you know, in the last twenty-four hours. 
well, yeah, that's not particularly valuable to us. But if you were actually, you know, I, I don't know, if, if you were Michelin, perhaps it might because it might be wearing their tires out quicker. But that that whole marketplace gets so complicated. So we layer layer together or put into segmented matrices all of this data, which enables us to do one thing, and that is to return the maximum amount to, to the client in terms of their investment. And that might be a sales target. It might be a share of market target. Uh, it may be they're in a highly they've got a they've got a uh, a new a new competitor who's come into the marketplace, or they were the lead brand and they're now a secondary brand because a challenger brand has overtaken them. All sorts of things. So whatever their business objective is, whatever their KPIs are, we that, that's the ultimate aim. And all of the negotiation that takes part in the media process is to get the best best price, and then for that, get an over-indexing outcome. So how do you, so fascinating around, uh, whenever I've been as a buyer, um, I've obviously, the key thing for me is the value creation piece, which is what we talked about before, which is if I can't see broadly a kind of 5 to 10x value return uh-huh. of what I'm paying, then the supplier who's trying to sell me something shouldn't be surprised when they get treated as a commodity. So how do you work out the value in the media world of spend versus return? How does that work? Absolutely. Wonderful question. There is an entire industry built around (laughs) something called media mix modeling, uh, multiple touch point attribution, loads and loads of research, even more data, even more systems that will actually give us the return on advertising spend or ROAS as it's called. and we will be monitoring the share of sales or share of market, which will often come from the client back to us. Um, and we would have said, here's the investment we've made across these media channels in this combination. We've reached X percent of the total population on average five times. And for your brand in this category, you know, an exposure level of four plus is recommended because you're high, it's a highly competitive and it's a weekly purchase and so on and so forth. So lots and an awful lot of strategic planning all the way down to, to minutiae of actually what inventory, what, which TV spots, which websites, which poster sites do are the best for your brand, for your campaign's objective at your level of investment. And the most important of them all, what is your overall return on investment and the KPIs to measure that? And they vary. And they vary within, I mean, within the bigger clients, um, you know, the, the the large CPG companies, they will vary across different categories of, of, of product as well. So give me an example also on this train. Uh, so we didn't prepare this. This was part of the going down the rabbit hole. Um, is, Absolutely, Mike. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all part of the fun. Um, so... And this isn't about necessarily Group M, but a big network agency. Mm-hmm. If a big network agency is negotiating media on behalf of their client, a big uh, consumer goods company, for example, yeah. versus a niche agency that's doing that, um, is the is the buying power critical? Because normally in procurement, I'd go scale yeah. equals buying power equals better rates. Yeah. But does it uh, work okay. in the media industry? Re- that is such a good question. It really is. Um it is the assumption that it is and that it's the most important thing. I would argue it is one of a number of things. Yes, certainly 15 years ago, the big buying agencies had leverage because of the sheer volume. Absolutely. 
Um, but because and it's because of not just the fact you've got the sheer volume, but if you account for twenty percent of a particular vendor's revenue, you're going to have a pretty close relationship with them. Exactly. And and also on top of that, the the share, I and mean, this is a massive problem and has been for for my entire career. This thing called overhead. Right. You know, unlike solicitors and accountants, we don't charge everything back. It goes into an overhead. And so part of the fee and has to go into overhead recovery. Has to go into overhead recovery. Yeah. And if you're a small specialist agency, you cut I you 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 would find it very difficult to actually maintain anything but a total charge back to client. Now, actually, that may well be a much, much better system because we used to work on a 15% commission, i.e. the agency, when it was a full-service agency before the media independence arose in the late 90s, would have 15% of the total media spend. Right. And I can assure you, a particular well-known CPG company based out of Cincinnati made sure they got 15% plus value out of it. Um, If they said jump, you said how high? we want another. We want another managing partner level person put on the business. It happened the next day. That doesn't happen anymore um, because it's a very, very constrained commercial model on all sides. And I'm not playing down the advertiser side, which I mean, quite frankly, I've never, you know, I've, I've never wanted to go onto the advertiser side of the business. But I've got a lot of very good friends who are there and have been there, and it is incredibly pressurised. And the buck stops with the CMO because if he doesn't deliver the margin and the sales levels to his CFO and CEO and COO, um, it's bye-bye. Do you feel it's a bit of a, and this is a, a question, not an assumption, is there a race to the bottom going on? Are the margins getting so thin? Yeah. There, there was. I think there was. And also, who it depends who you, who you think is in that race. Yeah. The advertising industry per se has always been oversupplied by by the supply side, i.e. the buy side. There's been more media advertising and media agencies than the business can support. And that's why we've had consolidation over the last 10 years and quite a significant amount of consolidation. Um, it's the same on the vendor side. There are too many vendors. And it's the same on the research side and the data side and you know the data science side of the business. And it's happening now with the AI and deep learning part of the business. And that's part of a, an open market economy, capitalist system. That's what happens. And I think that's fantastic. So I would rather say the cream rises to the top. Um, the, what the problem becomes is because you've got the oversupply, it forces down the Causes price. prices down. Exactly. Simple, but, basic but, economics, supply and demand. Yeah. Ah, no, well, not necessarily. So look at the UK housing market, which politicians think supply and demand. It's not. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's a totally different was, topic. And that was in the that was in my Investors Chronicle article today. Oh, uh, really? It's okay. like, are they land banking? A whole well, there's all topic. sorts of things. To, there's a whole different topic yeah, there. Let's precisely. not get diverted. Um, but the issue is... is <laughs> not the now, issue anyway. Is Over a drink, Simon. Yes, Yeah, exactly. absolutely, Mike, and it would be a delight. The... The price, you know, back to my original point, it's value that matters and the return on that investment that matters. Now, there are some some advertisers, of course, none of my clients at all, no. who still are heavily procurement and savings-led. 
and you, unit price, trying to work out what the unit is a- and absolutely. therefore what the unit price is. Yeah. But there are other clients at the other end of the spectrum, and some of them very large, highly sophisticated, using a lot of their own MarTech uh, marketing technology, um, using a lot of their own data with their own data science divisions, and actually doing a lot of forecasting uh, you know, quite accurately, involving AI, not just in decision support, but in creating process as well. Um, I mean, and for me, that's probably the, what's changed the most in the last three years is creative is now becoming a far more important part of the discussion for many clients. Um, and so it should be, because that's what influence, that's the brand communication to the consumer. And you know, there is no point, um, my colleagues in each country negotiating a 60% discount for a TV, for TV airtime that's going to achieve all of the reach figures at the right frequency with the right channel split around the right programs if it's the wrong place for that creative or if that's the right. creative isn't doing the right job. Exactly. So and that's why it's such a, a complex holistic. mix. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the things I'm looking to try and help um, through industry bodies perpetuate as we go through is, is, the, res- is the resurgence of creativity and the communication message as part of the strategic planning process. That doesn't change the activation and the buying. I've got a question around that. So we're going to finish in a couple of minutes. Yeah. On that topic, and it might be a follow-up conversation, um, negotiating deals around agency creativity, really, really, really hard. About how do you decide to pay a premium for an agency because of their creative work? How do you quantify that? And how do you sell the value of that? Any thoughts? Well, yeah, um, I, su- I suggest you pick up a phone and speak to Dave Trot, right? Or 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 Sir Hegarty, <laughs> um, or one of the creative luminaries in the business. I I can't answer that question. Um, I don't want to answer that question either. Because um, it's difficult. It's really it, difficult. I get asked it a lot. It's really difficult. But what is interesting is I'm having this debate at the moment with a lot of our data science teams. Another big change in the last 10 years. We now have teams of data scientists where yes. 10 years ago we had people that were super users on Excel. You know, no, no, we did. Absolutely it, right. It's yeah. changed. Um, yeah. But having that, this debate with them saying, as they're looking at ways of using AI in creative, and by the way, you know, this new stuff about chat is not isn't chat to ai is not new we've been doing it for 2 3 years but using ai in creative in terms of optimizing the creative message yes is only one part of the equation there is nothing that replaces the sheer brilliance of the top creative team of, of the creative man and the wordsmith so i think that will be a quote simon because yeah. that's really critical losing Absolutely sight of that might. Losing sight of the creativity within marketing to where yeah. we came from, surely. That's where the industry had its foundations. Very Well, advertising agencies started originally um, as the sales force for the national newspapers. Right. A subject I know close to both our hearts. Um, that's how it all started. And then it was, oh, well, can you do the ad for us? Yeah. So they then started doing the creative part of it. Um, and that's why within WPP, you know, I, I love time I spend within WPP when I'm representing Group M, working with Ogilvy and Jay Wonderman, well, Jay Walter Thompson and Wonderman Thompson, you know, VMLYNR, Gray, 
um, and some of our newer digital agencies. Um, these people are brilliant at understanding con how consumers work, how their minds work, because it's actually selling the product. It's not buying the sp not not buying the airtime or the out out of home space or the radio airtime or all the the you know, what you can pick up on the auctions programmatically through through ad serving uh, within the digital world. It's the message you put in there and. That is another thing, you know, I hope in the next few years we may move towards is outcome-based assessments, which is more important. Because at the end of the day, that's what that's what the CMO wants. He wants the most successful outcome. Yeah. He, she, they want yeah. the most successful outcome. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. What it's all Thank you for correcting me. You know, given that I'm carrying a bus pass, I'm politically incorrect. <laughs> no, actually, final, final comment. Um, yes. We talked about sustainability. We talked about yep. a lot of other things. Perhaps one of the biggest changes I've seen in the last, probably in the last three to five years, is the amount of diversity coming into our business. Right. And, you know, I, I welcome it. I think it's fantastic. Um, it used to be very much a, an Anglo-Saxon, US, UK axis. Yeah. No longer. You know, yeah. a can, it could be from Brazil, Bangladesh, Thailand, Vietnam, the creativity around the world is phenomenal. And each of our businesses is making sure that they're recruiting from diverse backgrounds, you know, which isn't just gender or age yeah. um, or religion. It includes deprivation. We yeah. no longer have graduate trainee schemes. We have apprentices. And they may well have left school without any qualification whatsoever. But if they've got a spark and they've got that ability, we hope you know, for some of them, they'll be given an opportunity. That's how um, I started life. I left school at 16. Yeah. I did an apprenticeship. Brilliant, Mike. So, Simon, amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Great, great to talk to you. Um, so, your last word, just if you're talking to people who are early in their negotiating careers, what would the piece of advice be that you'd give them? Be honest, be true to yourself, and be true to your client. Simon, it's been a complete pleasure. Thank you. And you, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.